Good morning. Welcome to Warren Community Fellowship. Good to see each one of you this morning. I encourage you to grab your seat this morning as we've entered into this place to worship. As you can tell, something's going on uh, this week that we've been talking about for a number of weeks and months now. VBS starts tomorrow, and so thus the decorations, and we're just going to enter in and kind of just ask God to prepare the whole week as we worship this morning, that this place would be filled with His presence as children come to this campus all week to learn about Jesus. But this morning we're going to worship Jesus. The Bible says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. That's why we're here this morning. So I invite you to stand and let's give thanks to Him this morning. One, two, three, four. This is the day that you have made. Whatever comes, I won't complain. For all my hope is in your name. And now your joy awaits my praise.
Amen. Hey, before you get seated, why don't you turn around and say hi to somebody that's sitting around next to you. Well, good morning, good morning. Super excited to be able to worship in a castle. Our theme this year is uh, Kingdom Keepers, and we're taking a look at the armor of God starting tomorrow. And uh, we're really excited about all that God's doing, especially with kids. One of the things that we get to celebrate is we get to celebrate families and kids. You know, they're the next generation of the church. And we are uh, kind of in a place right now where we're doing quite a lot of baby dedications. And so we have another child dedication, this service, and then and the next service. We're going to have Jace come up here in a moment. But it, we, we take a look and we ask the question, well, why? Why do we do baby dedications and not baby baptisms? Well, first of all, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is an outward confession of the transformation that God's done via the Holy Spirit. And it, and it comes first with the acknowledgement of sin, the confession of sin, and repentance, and then asking for that forgiveness of sins. And so within that, there has to be a, a real cognitive uh, decision for the Lord and accepting them. And, and you know, children at infancy and, and toddler and such really don't understand these concepts of sin. And yet, there is a great, great value that God gives to children. We know that they are a blessing. In fact, we read in Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, it says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. And how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies at the gate. And so within this, what the psalmist was saying is that children are a blessing. We are blessed to be able to see the next generation. We're blessed to be able to see the kids come, to train them up. In fact, that's our responsibility, our obligation as, as parents and grandparents, to be able to train the children in the ways of the Lord so when they grow old, they don't depart from them. Now, we do baby dedication and child dedication really because it springs forth from an Old Testament account of Hannah in 1 Samuel, where she had offered her child unto the Lord. She was childless, and God had blessed her with a child. She said, Lord, if you bless me with a child, then I want to dedicate him to your service for the rest of his days. And so Samuel was born and, and brought to Eli, and, and there he would serve 
the Lord within that. And that's always the hope of a parent and a grandparent to be able to watch their children come to faith early and then be molded and shaped by the Word of God and the community of faith that is surrounding them. And then with that, watching them become the next evangelists, the next teachers, preachers, and continuing the commission that God has given to us within this. We know that children were valued by Jesus so much. And, and it's interesting in the Near Eastern culture, children weren't really valued. They were, they were born because they needed workers. In the agrarian culture, you needed farm labor. So you would have kids. You'd have lots of kids. Why? Because that was your workforce to be able to do that. Yet, when the children would come to Jesus, the disciples thought, well, they're not spiritual enough. They're not connected enough. And so the disciples would push Jesus, the children off of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 19, it says, Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come, or let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Why would he say that? Because unless you have the mind of a child, the simplicity of faith, that we're going to talk about a little bit later, you're not going to come to that place of surrendering your heart to Christ. And so what I'd like for us to do as a congregation, a family of faith, is to be able to pray over Jace as he's going to come forward. For Jake and Kena, they're going to be parenting him. Um, but really, the Holy Spirit is going to guide them. And so we're going to ask them that they would come up. We're going to pray over Jace. I doubt he's going to go to me because he does this stranger danger thing, but we can try it. Yeah. Jake, Jake and Kena come to our, our, our next gen fellowship, but, but Jace just hasn't figured out that I'm a friend. We're still working on when he gets old enough for jelly beans, it'll work. <laughs> but I'm asking you to stand as we pray over them and we pray over Jace even now. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jake and Kena and, and their love for you and their passion for you. I know personally for spending a lot of time with them that they really want to follow you in all their ways. And for Jace, Lord, I know that, that he is a blessing to them. Father, we know that you have a plan set for him, for this young man, that you would pour your grace out upon him, that Holy Spirit, you would inspire his heart, that you would guide him in the steps according to your plan, God. And for Jake and Kena, that they would experience your power and grace as they raise their son, that as they surrender him unto you for service, may you use them as vessels to train up young Jason, and for the family to come alongside and support them. So, Lord, may you bless them and keep them. May your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them. And may all their days make you smile. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Congratulations. Thank you. There you go. Awesome. Bye, buddy. Well, let me pray as the ushers come forward for this morning's tithes and offering. God, we thank you. For the blessings that you've given to us, you are amazing and kind. In everything that you do and provide, it just it blows our mind You're just how much you love us. Lord, we would ask that this morning, that you help us to set aside any distractions or any hindrances from fully entering into your presence. That God, you would lead us and guide us 
to your throne room of grace. And that we would experience your power. That we would understand your word. That you would teach us. God, we acknowledge that everything that we have comes from you. And as this offering is being collected, may it be giving, given as an act of worship. An acknowledgement. Saying, God, you are great. And you are mighty. You provide everything. You give us hope and a future. And we want to love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
you to be exalted over every situation of our lives. We desire you to be the Lord of our life. And we are here because we want to draw close to you. We want to get to know you better. We want to worship you and express our gratitude and our love to you this morning. So we say thank you for bringing us through another week. We look forward to to this next week trusting you in all areas of our life but now we attend to your word we desire to have our eyes opened our ears opened and our hearts available to receive what you desire to teach us this morning so teach us Holy Spirit this morning in Jesus name everyone said Amen you may be seated as we work our way through the, the journal of Joshua, who do you trust when you're facing threatening situations? Things like a serious illness, cancer, or, or a job loss, or some type of, of you know, just threat against you or against another family member, who do you turn to? Now, sitting in church, you'll probably give me the Christian answer and say, well, God. But the reality is when the fire gets turned up, when things go crazy and, and a situation threatens your well-being, and it could be just about anything. It could be a divorce. It could be a, a financial uh, hit. All these different things. Our, our response is one of three. Fight, flight, or freeze. It's always going to be one of those three responses. Our brains go into this weird kind of condition when anxiety and fear come in and we go to this place of uncertainty when dread takes over. When it happens, there's this physiological thing that ends up happening to us and and when we're challenged, when we're overwhelmed, we get this, this overwhelming feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. When something presses in and challenges us and threatens us or threatens our family within these things. And a lot of people will initially act with uh, an initial response of denial. This isn't really happening. 
I can't believe this. Uh, not acknowledging the threat. This is all a dream. Others respond with fight mode. Where they want to fight, they want to attack, they want to get rid of the threat at all cost. And others will just try to run away from that threat. When your enemy is imminent, at your doorstep, and you look at this enemy, and this enemy is so overwhelming that you know for certain that as this enemy comes in, it will take you out. Guaranteed. 100%. And your life will either be radically changed or destroyed. Who do you turn to? I can tell you this, there's another part in every human being, every person, and it's called the thread of hope. It's a thread that looks for the solution. It's the thread that you grab onto, that you hold onto, that you're looking for that deliverance. That little thread of hope. For the believer, it's a thread of faith. Faith is a scarlet thread that God laces with the pearls of mercy and deliverance. It's this thread that adorns the believer that we wear this scarlet thread adorned with pearls of mercy and deliverance. And we can wear that boldly into whatever we're facing and know that God's got it within that. Billy Graham once said, Your faith may be just a little thread. It may be small and weak. But on that faith, act. It doesn't matter how big your faith is, but rather where your faith is. You may talk with people and, and, and they talk about faith and you say, well, yeah, I have faith. You know what the most important thing about faith is? The basis of that faith. You can have faith, but it really depends on what that faith is upon. You could have faith in doctors, but are, do doctors fail? Sure. You could have faith in family members, but will family members fail you? Yeah. But if your faith is in God, God never fails. He will never leave you, nor will He forsake you. And there are times in your life when the enemy comes, when you feel like you are hanging on by just a thread. That's all I got. Just a thread. But today we're going to learn how a woman named Rahab was hanging on to just a thread, one thread of faith, and God would reward her with mercy and deliverance. Now, where we're at in Joshua's account is this. Joshua was with all of the leaders, and they were on the other side in the plains of Moab, about to go into Jericho. He had already addressed all the people, and God had already had a conversation with Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 about don't be afraid, I'm with you, don't turn to the left or the right, but don't, and don't let the word depart from your mouth within this. God had given Israel the land through His divine initiative. God said, I have given you this land, the land of Canaan, but you have to go and take it. So there's a divine initiative along with human responsibility. God gives the promise, but you have to act upon that promise. 
And you act upon that promise in faith. God said it already is, but to, to actuate that, that faith into action, you have to actually walk out and do something with it. And for Joshua and the children of Israel, they had to cross the land. God had commanded Joshua to enter the land with a very specific command. Go into the land, take the land, displace the people. We read about in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it, and clears it away from the nations before you, the Hittites, the Geshurites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them, these seven nations stronger than you, before you, and you defeat them, human responsibility, then you shall utterly destroy them, and you shall make no covenant with them, and show no favor to them. That's Joshua's marching orders. Now keep in mind these marching orders in the back of your mind as we take a look at this account in chapter 2, because chapter 2 journals a gal by the name of Rahab the harlot. Many of you are familiar with the name, maybe not. The city is Jericho. Jericho already knew that Israel was going to come in and take the land. There was 12 spies that just short of 40 years earlier had come in, crossed over into the land. They were there. And now thousands and thousands of Israelites are camped out just on the other side of the Jordan. It was inevitable that Israel was going to come into the land and take the land, as we're going to see through testimony. And the people believed that. And this mass of people that were there, in fact, they were legendary. Rahab, in her testimony, will say, You, your God, is amazing. Why? Because He dried up the Red Sea and defeated the army of Pharaoh. And in crossing over the land, defeated two of the Transjordanian kings. Great kings. Mighty kings. And here we are in Jericho. You see, for Rahab, for the people of Jericho, their defeat and destruction was at their doorstep. They were right there. And the tension was amazing within this. In fact, Rahab would confess in 2.9, says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the terror of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land have melted before you. Is it safe to say that Rahab was terrified? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yet, we're going to see a thread of faith that Rahab declares and that God honors. And she was bold enough and courageous enough to declare that faith and to act on that faith despite the circumstances that were around her. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Who do you trust in when things are going sideways? My hope is that as we journey through this, this account of Rahab, you're going to learn to trust in Yahweh God. Let's stand as we read our text. Joshua chapter 2, I'll read through it. Listen to the account. 
so you'll be familiar with it when we unpack it. It says, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies, secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came into the house of the harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent out word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men, hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they came from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the forge. And as, they, as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And so the men said to her, Our life are yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land, that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. And so that she was living on the wall, and she said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then after word, you may go on your way. The men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather yourself, the household, your father, your mother, your brothers and all your house, father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the streets, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be free, but anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell the business of ours, then we shall be free from this oath which we've made you swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and so they departed. She tied the scarlet cord on the window. They departed, and they came to the hill country, and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now pursuers had sought them all along the road, but hadn't found them. And then the two men returned and came to down from the hill country, crossed over to came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land 
have melted away before us. May God bless the reading of His Word. You be seated. So as we take a look at this, verses 1-7 through seven really talk about the fact that personal threats will reveal your faith. To be able to understand how your faith is and who you trust in, these threats come in and they put pressure on us. And how we respond to these personal threats to our well-being, to our family well-being, really tell us what we believe in. Now, as I alluded to earlier in verse 1, we see the condition that's going on where Joshua and all the people are there on the other side. They're in a place called Shittim or the Acacia Grove. And they were all camped out there at the, at the base of Mount Peor. I have a map for you. Hopefully you can see a little bit of it. If you, if you take a look at the map and you look at the bottom of the screen, you're going to see a yellow line. And that yellow line is on a mountain range that goes across a, a plain. The, the blue line through the middle is the Jordan River. And Jericho is just on the other side. This would be the first line of attack for Joshua to enter into the land as he would come. Now, Jericho from the plains of Moab and where they were camping was 20 kilometers or about 15 miles. Could you imagine hundreds of thousands of people camped out only 15 miles away? Would you know they were there? Absolutely. We get a little freaked out about how close we are to Portland. Now we look at this, I'm sorry if you're a resident of Portland, Columbia County is much better, thank you, but within this, this, it's an interesting place because they're in what was called Abel Shittim, it was a place where Israel had been before, and what had happened in this place is, if you remember, there was a prophet by the name of Balaam. Balaam had coerced Israel to have relations with the women of Moab in order to bring about destruction upon the the nation. He was a prophet for hire. And for money he would prophesy and try to prophesy. I couldn't get it done. And so within that, he gave some advice and within this. So they're camped out at a place where initially they were at in getting ready to cross over, where they failed miserably. One of the things that's interesting is God brings them back to a place of failure, and then gives them a second chance to launch from that place of failure to be successful. Now, granted, it's a different group of people. These are the younger people that didn't die in the wilderness wandering. You can read about it in Numbers 25. But Joshua also, as a military person, follows Moses' example and says, look it, we need to know what's going on in the land. God said we get the land. Great. God gave us the promise. But we have to act with wisdom. Well, what was the wisdom? Send out spies. Am I going to send 12? No, that didn't work out so good last time. I'm going to send two. Just send two. They already know we're in the area. I'm just going to send two. I need to know the strongholds. I need to know what's going on in there. What is the the resistance of the people? What's going to be happening with them within this? And so in in verse 1, we see that they come out and these men, these spies, they cross the Jordan and they sneak around into the city and they come into Jericho and to this house, this house that's, that's being run by Rahab the harlot and it says that they lodged there. 
And they, they tried to come in secretly, but it didn't work out so good. They come to Rahab's house. Now, Rahab the harlot, and, and so was, was Rahab a harlot like what we would know today? Well, she was immoral for sure. We know that based on the implications of the New Testament sightings and the words that are used there. But Josephus uses another word that describes her, zona. Zona was a, is a word that describes a woman who was an innkeeper that was providing food and, and shelter and these kinds of things. So, practically, Rahab is a Gentile woman, businesswoman, and she's providing food and shelter as an innkeeper. And it was a traveling in, innkeeper place that was there. A lot of people would have been passing through her house within this. It's kind of like the, you know, the Motel 6 and you know, along a highway kind of thing. It was the first place to stop within that, in the city of Jericho. Now, it's estimated that Jericho proper was about 9 to 10 miles in diameter. We've got a couple of pictures for you to give you an idea. This is an artist's rendition of, of what Jericho would look like. We will actually, when we do our Israel trip, and, and you are more than welcome to join us. We're still taking sign-ups and stuff. We're going to fly into Tel Aviv and then drive by bus to Jericho, but we're not going to stay at Rahab's house. Um, but one of the things about the wall city of Jericho that's still there, and it's a tell, and they've excavated quite a bit of it, is if you notice there are two walls that, that are within there. The, there's a wall within a wall, and it's called a casement. And so the fortified city, the best part of the fortified city is in behind the second wall. But there would be a first wall, and it's on a hillside or a tail, slanted, and so you would have some, some other shops and things that were there. And so this is an artist's rendition of a, a casement that is there. Archaeologists have found portions of that wall that is there. I can show you another picture of that. This is, this is an excavated casement. And as you can see, everything in, in your mind, because our Western culture is much bigger than what it really is, really isn't all that big. But you can see the rooms that are part of the outer wall and the casement as it would slope down. And that center section would have been the gate. So that center section that looks like three, the number three on each side, that's actually the gate, what would have come in. And so you would have had a big gate there, and then there was guard positions on either side of those sections of that gate. And you can see how easy it is for a house or storage area to be right built on the wall that is there. We have another picture that is there. This is the section that is excavated in that area of Jericho that is there that shows the steps and an area of the casement where somebody would have been living. So this is Jericho. Do we have Rahab's house? No. But what we do have is this section of Jericho that's right next to another section that didn't fall. Even to this day, it's still standing within that. Which is, gives to us, they know that there was a catastrophic event because the archaeologists have seen two breaks in the, in the casement walls that show where the wall had crumbled right across from each other as if it was on a fault line creating a straight shot into the core of the city. So with that framework in your mind and seeing hundreds of thousands of people 15 miles away and you know imminent danger is coming 
and they're coming in, and you're Rahab, and you're working that day in your inn, and these two guys that are dressed a little weird show up, and you're like, oh no, they're here. The enemies have shown up. And you know what she does? She hides them. She hides them. Now, again, she is face to face with her enemy. One of the things that is interesting to me, how is it that two spies from Israel cross the Jordan, go to this city, and find Rahab, who's predisposed and already has a fear of Yahweh God, and already has an internal faith in Yahweh God, that He is the true God. That's all she knows. Yahweh is a true God and He's here to destroy us. That's all she knows. And these Jews, these Israelites, are going to be the tool to do that. And now she's looking at them face to face within this. How does that happen? God. God's divine appointment. Brings the two spies to Rahab. Why? Because God had predetermined that Rahab would be saved. He would honor a faith that was already existing and align the appointment up in such a way that her faith could be declared and actuated on. That she could act on that faith. And so here we see God's divine initiative and human responsibility coming together within that. What would you do if your enemy was at your doorstep? Face to face. The one person or the, the, the situation, and now you are face to face with it. Are you going to fight? Are you going to run? Are you going to freeze? Rahab is going to reveal her faith. And it's the circumstances that come about. So Rahab brings these spies in. The other challenge is this, verses 2 through 7. There is the challenge of the king. Now, this faith is revealed through these circumstances. The king hears about the fact that these two Hebrew spies are in the land. And notice what the king does. The text says that the king went to Rahab. Why would the king go to Rahab? Because Rahab is the first hotel on the way. Rahab knows everything that's going on about everything. Rahab is housing the spies. Why? Because the people saw these spies come into the land. They were recognized when they were found out. And notice the testimony. They're here to search out the entire land. These men that have come. Bring them out who have entered your house. They've come to search out the land. They know what's going on. Now, chronologically, as we read this, we got to read this in such a way that, that there's an event happening, but there's an event that happened prior to the event. What was the event that happened prior to the king's men coming and telling Rahab, bring out the spies? Rahab had already hidden the spies. She already acted on what she knew she needed to do for the spies. And then when the men showed up looking for the spies, they wouldn't find them. Where did she hide them? On the rooftop. Under what? Under stalks of flax. Do you know what flax is? 
I didn't know what flax was, so I had to Google it. Flax are, are little three to four foot stalks of um, flax. <laughs> that they would soak and then they put them up on the roof and then they break them down and they would take the strands and they would use them for linen. It would look something like this. That's what flax looks like. I don't know. They go to Walmart and I buy sheets. I don't, I don't go looking for flax. But the key is she had already hidden them there. Why? Because she already determined in her mind and knew the culture that if the men would be found, they would be killed. She feared Yahweh and the judgment that he was bringing and the land that was coming to him. She feared Yahweh God more than she did her king and the people that are there. And so she had already hid them up there. And so when the, the spies came, she lied. She lied to the, the, the servants. They said, bring them out. But the woman said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. Is that a truth or a lie? A lie. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate in the dark that the men went out. She, she says, I, I, I don't know. Now, here's the challenge. Rahab is noted as a, a great woman of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, it says this. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies of peace. In James 2.25, it says, In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Rahab's in the great hall of faith. She is declared justified by her works uh, that demonstrate her faith. Yet she lied. Now we have an ethical problem. Is it okay to lie for a greater good? It's a difficult problem. It's a moral conflict that we run into within this. Is it okay to lie to save a life? And we have to wrestle with that. Now, some would say, yes. Some would say, no. A lie is a sin. And if you really have faith in God, you're going to always tell the truth including lying, or not lying, but to save a life. If Rahab really trusted in God, she wouldn't have lied. She wouldn't have trusted in God. But we also have to understand the context. What did Rahab know? She knew that Yahweh God was there, that He was the real God, as she declares a little bit later. She was not a Jew. She wasn't under the Decalogue the Ten Commandments. She knew that it was morally wrong to lie, but what is, greater, uh, what is a greater moral wrong? Murder. To hand them over. She feared the God of the Hebrews more than the God of the kings because the God of the Hebrews, as she would say, is the true God, which is in this. So what do you do when you have two moral truths that come in conflict with each other? 
How do you handle that? How do you manage that? Do you choose the lesser of two evils within this? The other thing that we have to understand is this. Sin is what created moral conflict. Moral conflict would not exist had sin not existed. So now we're in this, this condition where we have to choose the best outcome out of two sins that is in that. And in real life, things can get messy within that. And so we, we run into these moral conflicts. If you're a soldier, yet God says, do not kill, but as part of being a soldier, you may have to take a life. If you're law enforcement, it says, do not kill, but in your job in protecting life, you may have to take a life. Understand this, you didn't create the conflict, sin did. And you have to navigate that conflict with the consciousness of your heart. And what is the best choice? Choosing life is always the best choice. Choosing life is always the best choice. And so Rahab chooses this, this life. And so when we, we look at this, we are challenged with this. Do we have biblical precedence for this? Yes, we do. In Exodus... A similar situation happened with the midwives of Pharaoh and they were commanded, kill all the Hebrew baby boys. In Exodus chapter 1, 15 to 21 says this, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them said, named Shipra, and the other named Pua, and said, When you are helping the Hebrew women and give birth and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter... Then she lives. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the boys live? So they violated the order to abort the babies. Midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. And so they lied to Pharaoh. Note. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty, because the midwives, note, feared God, and he established households for them. When pushed to shove, when you come to that place, what is the key? Fearing God. It's that thread of faith that will guide you to do the right thing. The right way at the right time, because it's divinely given and inspired to choose life. So the king's servants believe Rahab. They go out and they start heading towards the hill country. And God will reward that simple faith. She protected the spies. And the, the, the soldiers, they go, they go taking off with that. Now that the, the conflict is, is mitigated a little bit, we see this confession. If you look at verses 9 through 11, we see how this confession really gives the foundation for her faith. How do we know that Rahab really believed? It's important to take a look at the confession of faith that's there and the basis of her faith. You know what's interesting about this? The basis of her faith, the foundational aspect of her believing is fear. Now, we don't talk about fear all that much, but I can tell you this. One of the things that's most important is this. 
You want to believe in God. Why? Because you fear hell. You fear death. You fear eternal torment. And you embrace love and acceptance from God. Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And in this world today, are we surrounded by a bunch of fools? We are. If someone says to you, I became a Christian because I am scared to death of eternal damnation. That's legitimate faith. That's legitimate faith. Because there is a judgment that's out there. When we take a look at a powerful God, we've got to understand He is a judge that, that will judge. And so he, she goes up to the, the roof to have a conversation. And she gets up top of the roof and she says, Hey guys, come on out. Coast is clear. Now we need to have a talk. Rahab was tough. She was a tough businesswoman. And she says, we need to have a conversation, a talk. And notice what she says. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the terror of you has fallen upon us. I know this. I know the land is already yours. And, and so... She says that basically she wasn't the only one afraid. In fact, all our hearts are melting. When you look up that word melt in Hebrew, it, it literally means to be demoralized within this. To be demoralized, to, to melt away as if there is nothing holding you together. And she is clear that this nation that is before the Jericho and Canaan and all that is there to destroy them. I know this is going to happen. I know this. We know and that it happens. Why? Because of the testimony. We heard the account, Exodus 14, about how your God parted the Red Sea. And then after that group crossed, then it crashed in and destroyed Pharaoh's army. We know this. We know how when you came across the land with Sihon and Og, how they were destroyed. Og, if you read the account in Numbers chapter 21, and Sihon in that battle, these were two kings that were feared, Amorite kings that were feared by everybody. In fact, Og is of the, the Anakims. And if you know the name Anakims, they were the giants of the land. They were the people that everybody in Canaan was scared of. And your God destroyed them. And if He did that to them, He'll do it to us also. We know that, that based on God's promise, He is keeping His promise. Numbers 21.34 says, But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear Him, for I have given Him into your hand. And all the people in this land you shall do to Him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. Do you understand there is something that God did amazing? Not only did He part the Red Sea, not only did he destroy Sihon and Og, but God sent a spirit of fear into the land in order to destroy the people. That's powerful. And Rahab and her people are experiencing this. Exodus 15, 16 says this, Terror and dread will fall upon them by the greatness of your army, and their motionless as stone freeze. Until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you purchased. And in 23.27 says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among 
whom you come and I will make all of your enemies turn their backs to you. God made a promise and said, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to send fear in and you're going to crush them. Thread of faith. Go take the land. Rahab says, we are terrified. We are a terrified people within this. And then she declares her faith in verses 11 to 14. Notice what she says in verse 11. She says this, When we heard it, our hearts melt. There was no courage in any man any longer. Because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, you read that and you go, okay, well, that's cool. She declares that God's God. No, you've got to read what's in it. What did the pagan culture believe in? Idols. False gods. Ashtaroth. Moloch. All of the false gods that were there. What is she saying in this statement? Yahweh God is God above all else in heaven, and on earth. She is rejecting idolatry. She's rejecting the gods that she grew up in. The, the gods of her culture, she's saying, I'm turning my back on all of them because your God is the definite article, true God. That's her declaration of faith. It was the fear of this mighty God that led her to declare the truth about the mighty God within this. She had heard about everything that was going on, as Romans 10, 17 says. So faith comes by hearing and the hearing of the word of God. And then believing, she confessed her faith with her mouth. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses salvation. Rahab is an example of an Old Testament believer. She believed that God is the God above everything, and then she confessed it with her mouth, outwardly. This morning, have you done that? Do you have that thread of faith of knowing who God is, and knowing who God is, can you declare publicly that faith in God and Him alone? And so within this, Rahab becomes this, this new person at this time in declaring this. And she says, because of this faith, will you act kindly? Interesting. The word kindly there is chesed. If you've been with us on Wednesday night, you know what that word means. Will you deal with me with chesed? Chesed love is the same love that God has given to his people. And she's asking for chesed. Will you give me chesed? Loving kindness that is long-suffering, patient, and kind. Will you be kind? You say, well, what does that really work like? It looks like this. God would command the nation of Israel to come in and she would be saved. She's saying, will you make a covenant with me? A chesed covenant. Now, how does that work if God said, don't make a covenant with all of these people in the land? Destroy them all. Well, by her faith declaration, she's no longer a citizen of that land. 
She's the first Gentile proselyte because she is declaring her faith in Yahweh God, making her what? Jewish. She's a Jewish convert to Jewish faith. Therefore, they can declare that covenant relationship with her. And they said, now this covenant is conditional. This covenant is conditional. Don't tell anybody. Because if you tell anybody, covenant's broken. So within this, we have this, this bilateral covenant that is there. To keep her, that's with this. I'm reminded of John 6.37. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. How did the spies meet Rahab? God did it. How did Rahab come to faith? God did it. Revealed himself. She declared that faith. And within this, Rahab came to Yahweh God and God says, I will not cast her out. I will accept her within this. Because God rewards that simple faith. And lastly, in verses 15 to 24, she lets him down the window. So now it's time to go. So she goes to the side. She goes, you got to go now. you got to go. We're good. Got to go. Throws a rope over the side, out the window, down the wall. They're going down the wall. Meanwhile, the guys say, look it. You see this scarlet cord? This thread? Hang it from your window. And we will be in covenant together. And our covenant, the sign of the covenant is the scarlet thread. The scarlet thread doesn't save her. The scarlet thread is a sign of the covenant agreement between Rahab and the nation of Israel. And they said, look it. Put everybody in your, in your house, within here, and stay in the house. And if they go out of the house, they're not, they're not part of the agreement anymore. They've got to go in the house, they've got to stay in there. And when the Lord gives us this, we will tell everybody, do not attack the house that has the scarlet thread. Does that remind you of anything in the Old Testament? Maybe an exodus... Where God made a conditional agreement with the nation of Israel upon leaving and said, put everybody in, get ready to leave, kill a lamb, take the blood and put it on the doorposts. And when the angel of death passes over, you'll be saved. It's so cool that these guys learn the lesson of the Bible. And so they do this. They, they, they do this and, and they honor it within this context. She lets them down. They go off. They hide for three days. And they go back to Joshua and they say, Joshua, you're not going to believe this, but the land is ours and everybody is melting away. Meanwhile, Rahab is gathering all of her family into her household, preparing for the invasion. But this thread of faith that is hanging from her window is what solidifies the covenant between her and the nation of Israel. She believed in Yahweh God. She confessed her faith in Yahweh God. God gave her a sign of protection that will cover her until the end of the invasion, which she will be saved within that. We see that this outcome that is there. God is going to honor simple faith. All you've got to say is, God, save me. And acknowledge Him as Lord, and He will honor that within this. The faith wasn't in the scarlet thread. The faith was in the promise behind the scarlet thread. 
And the promise is Yahweh will save you. And He will show mercy and He will deliver you from your problems. That is the threat of faith. Let's pray. God, I thank You that we can come to You and we can be in this place. We can honor You. Lord, I know that, that so many times we get challenged and threatened by our enemies. And our first reaction often is to fight or to flight or to freeze. Lord, may we learn this lesson from Rahab. May our first reaction is to call out to You. Because You're the God that saves. You're the God that shows mercy and You're the God that delivers. And when we become overwhelmed, may we run to You and know that You have us covered. And I pray, God, that, that even during this last song that You would move on people's hearts to know that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen. All my words fall short. I've got nothing new. How could I express all my gratitude?
go out today. May we walk by faith and not by sight. God, I thank you that you've given every man a measure of faith to believe. And it's that thread of faith that we can hang on to. It's a simple, simple truth that you are God, sovereign over all. And we can call out to you in times of distress for mercy and deliverance. And you will deliver. We thank you and we praise you. And as we go out, May we share that message with others. And most importantly, God, help us to do everything to make you smile. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. And praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.